Dear Lord, I thank you for this day, this beautiful day you've given us, and thank you that you love us. Thank you for your word, and I just pray for the church family and all our missionaries throughout the world that are spreading your word and your truth. We just pray for endurance and love and wisdom as they continue to serve. And bless our time here today as we study your, uh, our hearts and our minds in relationship to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we uh, start, we're doing a little mini-series here on the heart and the mind, and uh, kind of to get us to think a little bit. And so here's an outline, uh, if that is going. There we go. Here's our objective. So we're going to look at a cognitive dissonance. Mentioned that last week. I'll give an example of it. What are the consequences when we're double-minded that will always lead to anger, and the anger ends up landing on God? That's a problem. So we need a change of our heart And that requires the big picture with spiritual warfare. So that's kind of an outline of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to start with a cognitive dissonance and what that is. So you may hear that phrase. It's described various ways. A secular way of looking at it, they'll have trouble dividing the heart and the mind, and they don't accept an immortal soul. And so it'll be limited. What a cognitive dissonance is, double-mindedness, the Bible calls it, Your mind can see one thing, but your heart wants to believe another. So what's an example? You see this all the time. My family went to Eagle Crest here a couple weeks ago, and we played a bunch of pickleball. We'd go out and play a couple hours every day, a bunch of competitive people. And when you're in a competition, you'll notice, what are the rules? It's like ping pong, but you're out on a court running around. If it hits the line, it's in. If it's out of the line, it's out. I don't know if that's official rules. That's the way we play. So you agree on the rules. How can there be so much debate? That was in. No, it was out. And why is it so predictable which side says it was in and which side says it was out? That's a cognitive dissonance. Let's understand this. So your eyes are going to see visual input, and that's going to go into your retina. These are olfactory nerves. That's smell. The optic nerve is going to go, and it courses through the brain, and it's got to go to the visual cortex. Why is it in the back of the brain? That's interesting. But it goes clear to the back of the brain. But it goes through the thalamus. It used to be felt that the thalamus was just a relay station, but it's not. It relays, but it also absorbs input from the limbic system, and our heart. And so all sensory, our auditory system, everything gets modification before it hits to the cortex. So you can actually truly believe what you saw, but it was affected by what you want to believe in your heart subconsciously. It's amazing. You watch a football game, and a guy is running, and he fumbles, but was his knee down or not? Notice they're going to slow-mo that and ultra-slow-mo If you're for this team, you think he clearly fumbled. For this team, nope, his knee was down first. Your visual input is identical. It should be, but what actually registers in your cortex has been modified along the way. So the more close it is, the more your heart will trump. So your heart will always win. What you want to believe will always win against what your eyes actually saw until your heart breaks and yields. But that's a fundamental change. So that's understanding that principle of a cognitive dissonance. Now we're going to go to John 11. Uh, Just a brief review from last week. This is Lazarus. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha. The sister sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick, your friend. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. So this sickness is for something. Wouldn't you love it 
in your life when you have some trial, some issue you're going through, if God specifically told you, don't worry, it's not for this, it's for that, wouldn't that make it so much easier? And I, I, yeah, I would love to hear that. Until you actually analyze it, it doesn't make a difference. Mary and Martha knew the Lord Almighty, the Alpha and the Omega, told them it will not end in death. He didn't say he'll never die. He said it will not end in death. And he tells them it's for the glory of God. So he, they know the purpose of this trial, black and white. But you don't understand my pain. My brother died. That's the heart and the pain and the emotion. And now they can't see it. And they both are angry and blame God. We covered that last week. If you had been here, you would not have died. In anger, they blame God. Even though he told them, God tells us as well. In James and Philippians, consider it joy. Rejoice always. We're told black and white, but God, you do not understand my pain. And now we struggle, and that's a cognitive dissonance. It's for the glory of God. So we're going to go to the glory of God for a minute. Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. That's number one in your notes. The purpose of creation is the glory of God. Purpose of creation is the glory of God. Psalm 29, to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, intrinsically do him for who he is. Worship the Lord in holy array. Have you ever wondered, because I've wondered this, isn't that a bit selfish? To create everything for your own glory? Let's put a psychological term on it, that's narcissism. Hmm. Well, you can't ask that. If you don't wrestle with that question, your kids will. And they'll ask you, yeah, I've learning about this in sociology and philosophy class and psychology class. God's a narcissist. And then you're kind of, eh. well, yeah, he did make it. And how do we deal with that? I'm going to explain how I kind of work through that. And it's very simple. I am the best player on the JBC co-ed softball team. We have, you may not even know, but we have a team we're playing. And I'll prove to you that I am clearly, undisputedly the best player on the team. We just played this last Monday night, and I hit a double. Best player. What happened, coach? Well, I'm up to bat. And this is softball. It takes a while for the ball to come in. And I swing for all I'm worth, and ting, this little dribbler is going down towards third base. The guy, if he's waiting there, he's never going to get to it. So he has to charge the ball. And I start running to first, but I've been told... It doesn't really look like running. I have a bad back and a sciatic nerve problem. So I'm in transit to first base. And the third baseman, he has to charge a thing. And he gets there. As he's starting to field it and throw it over to first, I've noticed something. And it, it happens often when I'm up to bat. I'm meandering in transit. And the first baseman starts, he's taking his eye off the third baseman. Oh, he's looking, what is this? What's going on? And the whole dugout starts talking. There's a whole, there's murmurings. You can hear stuff. And this week, I actually heard the phrase, I think it's a a walrus going down at first. So these guys are looking. The third baseman kind of looks, and he, horrible throw, because they're all looking at this thing moving down to first. The throw goes out of of bounds. A couple minutes later, I arrive on first base. Safe! And I told you I got a double. 
Because the ball went out of play, the umpire says, runner advance to second. Now, this is my third double this way this year. And I have realized I ain't running to second. Courtesy runner, please. And I just head off the field. And the young kid goes and runs for me. So, I hit a double this week. I am the best player on the team. Why are you laughing? Because you know that's a load of garbage. I'm not quite the best player. We got a lot of 20-year-olds that can run circles around me. But I want to feel good about myself. I want the glory of being the best player. So I'm going to restrict the field. Out of the old fat guys on the team, I am the best player. I want to feel good about myself, but I look around. Now it's down to me and Henderson. The only two guys that fit that category. But Henderson is pretty valuable as a pitcher. And he gets some good hits periodically. I need to feel good. I need the glory. I'm going to restrict the field even more. To be old requires you are over 50 years old. Now I've got them both, old and fat. I'm alone. I am the best player. So that's funny, but you see how stupid it is. I have to restrict the field to be called the best. If a scout for the Yankees shows up, will he say that old guy is the best player on the team? No, because to make that assessment would be an error. It would be false. It would not be true. He would have to make an error in thinking and processing to assess me as the best player. Because I'm clearly not. Well, how about God with his glory? What is it? God is omniscient. He is not a narcissist. Number two, God is not a narcissist. Rather, he is omniscient. What does that mean? To be omniscient, you know all things. There is no thing you don't know. No dot you didn't create. No connection between any dots moving over time that you're not in full mastery of because you created them all. He knows everything. It is impossible for God to make a mistake in judgment. It is impossible for God to render judgment that I am the best player on the team. Likewise, it is impossible for God to say any aspect of creation has glory intrinsic to itself because that would be false. Let's take Lucifer, the highest of the created beings. You see what God says about him in Ezekiel 28. It's a list of wonderful things, including being perfect from the day he was created up until he fell. But for a while he was perfect, blameless. Thou sealest up the sum. He is the measuring cap above Michael, above any other being. Lucifer, does he have glory intrinsic to himself or was it given to him by God? given to him by God. As we are resurrected, we'll have a glorified body. Adam and Eve had glory in the garden. That's what they were stripped of. That's why he was afraid. Did we have that intrinsic to ourself or was it given to us by God? So it is an error to ascribe glory to anything of creation. That is not narcissism. It is being true. To give glory to anything else, I might as well be the best player on the team. So God is the truth. Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. He gives glory to people, but it's always in parcels and segments and percentages. It's never the whole thing. Nothing could even handle the whole thing of his glory. The weight would crush and vaporize it. It can't. It's not that he doesn't want to. It's he can't. That violates reality because we can't handle it. He is infinite, uncreated, self-existing. We are finite. 
So John 11, as we finish moving, talking about Lazarus, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in Jesus. There's the end goal is a change of heart. These people believe. Why? The therefore, what happened right before this, the resurrection of Lazarus. We did that last week. That's agapeo love, not his relationship love. Why did he wait? Because of agapeo, agape love. There's a verb and a noun, the two different ways. This is the verb form. It's the action. What are we trying to do? But you notice what God told Mary and Martha at the outset? This sickness will not end in death. He changes that. He raised them up. So it's not the resurrection. It's the glory. Because he didn't say the end of this will be a resurrection or love, a verb. He said it will be a noun, glory. It's for the glory. The noun exists. The verb is action that points you to the existence of the glory. So the end result is not the resurrection, and it's not even the belief of the people. He told us it was the glory from the very outset, yet we can't see that when we go through it real time. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus has done, the little tattletales. Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and said, What are we doing, us Pharisees and priests? For this man, Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe him. And then what will happen? The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What is their concern? Their own place. That's power. The Pharisees, the priests, they tell everyone, here's what God says. They dictate the truth. They are in charge. They are the arbiters of all things correct. You're not doing it right. We're going to kick you out. They're in control. They have money. They have power. They want to keep that. If there's a potential king coming up, the Romans are going to come get rid of the Jews, but we will lose our place that was appointed by the Romans. There hasn't been a king since Babylonian captivity. It's the priests that are ruling. We want the power. Well, how about the chief priests? Who were the high priests? That was Annas and Caiaphas. Sadducees. They do not believe in the resurrection. Oh, we got a problem. Number three. The chief priests and Pharisees could not handle the truth of Jesus. And there's many signs... He only told us one of this resurrection of Lazarus right here, but there's many signs Jesus is doing. John's not reporting them all. Many signs. So here we see a cognitive dissonance again. Mary and Martha had a cognitive dissonance. I had one playing pickleball, being irritated. And notice as I'm playing against, it might be my son or my daughter or my son-in-law, and I start getting irritated at their call. My shot was in and you called it out, and that leads to anger. Well, how productive is that? Look at now the Sadducees, particularly the high priest. There ain't no resurrection. We have a narrative. We are in charge. We set the table of everything that's going to happen. We are the arbiters of truth. We're in charge. He's not, and he sure ain't God, and there is no resurrection. But their eyes can see the signs, including a resurrection. That's a cognitive dissonance. The mind can see the signs. But the heart wants to believe its own narrative. And you see there's conflict in the mind. That is a cognitive dissonance. What is the result of a cognitive dissonance? You will have anger. And eventually that anger will land on God. And then we will justify our anger. Well, but we're going to lose our place. You hurt me. Now you have anger. No, I don't have anger. You hurt me. You wounded me. I am the victim here. My narrative says I am the victim and someone else is at fault. I am the victim. It's not anger. We justify our anger by dressing it up and calling it something else. 
Now a large crowd of the Jews learned that he, Jesus, was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So that's just understanding a cognitive dissonance in the narrative of this story. What are the consequences of that going on in our heart and mind, which leads to anger? James spells this out in chapter 1. Now we're going to just pick up 7 and 8. For that man, the double-minded man, the man with a cognitive dissonance, that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from God. Don't expect your prayers to be answered. You realize there's multiple times your answer, prayers are not answered. Some people say it might be maybe. No, there is multiple times in Scripture prayers will not be answered, and here's one of them. An unstable man in all he does. So this is James 7 and 8. What's 2 and 4? 2, 3, 4. Consider it all joy, my brothers, and you undergo various trials, knowing that the trial process is what builds character and growth. It's an act of will to consider that joy. Now you won't be able to see it. We're sinful and fallen, and our heart is mad because my leg hurts, my back hurts, whatever. So we're complaining about the circumstance instead of seeing how to grow. That is the context here in the book of James to pray for wisdom. It's not wisdom for a chemistry test. It's wisdom how to see what God is doing in the trial in my life and how that leads to my character growth. That is the wisdom that God will answer. But not if you're double-minded. Not if we say, yeah, I realize you said it will end in glory, but my brother died and I have pain. You simply don't understand my pain. You see that? That's a cognitive distance. My mind knows this trial is for my good because I can read the book of James. I can read Philippians. I know that, but my heart has pain. My husband cheated on me. My child had cancer. Fill in the blank. You don't understand my pain. Cognitive dissonance. The mind knows what the scripture says, just like Mary and Martha. They were told it won't end in death, yet they were angry at God. That's what we do as well, and you, we are unstable. At the end... Verse 20, what is the result? So I've just fast-forwarded through 20 verses here. Anger that does not achieve the righteousness of God. Number four, being double-minded about the character of God results in anger. You read that passage and you're never sure what a double-minded man is. Now we understand it. Hebrews 12, all we're looking at here is the root of bitterness because we dwell on anger. We make the choice to be anger. Now we have this root of bitterness and I have a gravel driveway at my house. There's a picture of it and I've noticed these stupid weeds grow. I have never seen beautiful flowers grow up in the gravel. I have never seen a functional yard I can go play softball in grow up in the gravel. Gravel stinks for stuff to grow, but weeds love it. Well, they have roots. So here's one of these weeds and then you look at it and look at that root. This is one going down. Here's, it curves. Where is the nutrients? Oh, it's way over there. This little snippet of stuff, and it'll send that root to find it. These things are pretty amazing. That's a root. Here's another one. That might look like grass up there. You can mow this all you want. You can deal at the surface. If you don't go to the bottom of the root, look at that root. You mow it, it comes back. You mow it, it comes back. You have a deep wound. You have to get to the core of that wound to heal it. A root of bitterness is a deep wound. Salve over the top will not address the root. It just keeps coming back, and in fact, it grows deeper and deeper. There's another one. Interesting, I broke this one off. I didn't get the whole thing. So our normal cells, what do they do? You put them in a Petri dish, they're going to grow until they bump up against one another or the edge of the Petri dish. Oh, That's the edge of my boundary. They understand they're part of the body. And so they'll stop growing. 
If they get a wound, they'll realize their nutrients and oxygen levels are not quite right. They'll secrete factors that generate new blood vessels. That's called angioneogenesis. Angiogenesis. So they will make new vessels to feed them, bring oxygen, nutrients, antibodies, healing, solve the wound that's epigenetically turned on, and then when the wound is healed, it is now turned off. A process under control that solves problems. That's amazing. That's epigenetics. Normal cells will do that. Well, how about cancer cells? A cancer cell is a normal cell that has been defiled. It has been corrupted. Exactly like us, we were perfect, but now we're defiled and sinful. A cancer cell, put them in a petri dish, they'll grow and divide. They don't care if they bump into other cells. They don't care if they hit the edge. They're going to bubble up and keep growing and keep growing. It's about me. Screw you. It's about me. That's a cancer cell. They will also secrete uh, angiogenesis factors to make new blood vessels. Under the microscope, you can tell they're not quite normal. They're, they're defiled, but they work. They bring blood vessels. They turn it on, and they crank it up, and they never turn it off. So selfish. It's all about me. You have a root of bitterness. You cannot have reparations that ever solve that. It will never be enough. A cancer cell is never satisfied. It keeps bringing more, more, more until the host dies. I don't care if I kill you because I'm going to die anyway, but I got mine. That is amazing, the corollary of a cancer cell compared to a normal cell, and we look at what anger going to bitterness does in our soul. What are the consequences of anger? Ephesians 4, 26, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down to us your anger, do not fester on your anger, do not give the devil a foothold. A foothold. You go study Ephesians 4, it is crystal clear this is written to believers, This is not for pagans or non-believers. Written to believers. Crystal clear, you read the context. What is a foothold? The Greek, a topos, a place. Not based on geography or shape, but based on occupancy. Let's understand that a little bit more. Number five, the choice to cling to anger gives the devil a foothold. A topos. So it's interesting, we can go to words of Christ in Matthew 24. He's talking about the end times here. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. What he's saying is, why on earth are you looking at anything of the end times if you don't understand Daniel first? Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So what is this? Satan will indwell the Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years, which mirrors chapter 12 in Revelation, which is the middle verse of the book of Revelation. Now he is going to come to the earth. He will stand in the Holy of Holies. He will rebuild a temple. There will be a Holy of Holies there. And Satan and the Antichrist will be there saying, I am God. Second Thessalonians 2, the lie, singular, the lie. That is what it is. I am God. Jehovah, Yahweh is not. That is the lie at the high point of the tribulation. But we're not studying eschatology. We're looking at what is a place, a topos. There's a place, the Holy of Holies. Not based on geography or location, based on occupancy. Is this temple Satan's temple? No. It is God's temple. Is Satan in it? Yes, he's in the place under the sovereignty of God. He doesn't own it. He doesn't control it, but he can wield influence in it. For a period of time, under God's sovereignty, just like dealing with Job, Satan has a topos. He has a place. Boy, that's a powerful thing that anger does in our brain. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Psalms 36. It flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his sin, iniquity, and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. Where is this battle going on? 
in his heart what's going on. The heart is deceitful above all else. So look at his language. It's wickedness and deceit because it comes out of the heart. He's not doing good anymore and it flatters him in his own eyes concerning his sin. Hey, you're doing sin. No, I'm not. In fact, it's good. It's beautiful. It's love. That's what this passage is talking about. So deceived in the heart when we see our sin, something or someone points out our sin. That is not sin. It's beautiful. It's love. We see that in our culture all the time. What is that? What does our culture dress this up and call it? And when I point it out to you, you're saying, oh my goodness. Because I'm told to teach this to my kids all the time. Remember, Satan is the master of propaganda. Simply when you hear something over and over from the culture, that's your clue. Because you heard it over and over, dig to understand it. That's a lie from Satan. He controls the culture. What is this? Self-esteem. I need a trophy for being the best guy on the softball team. I need to feel good about myself. So even when I'm sinful and I'm not that good at softball, I still have to feel good about myself. So I change the terms, whatever I do. And in my own mind, I don't even realize it because I'm so intrigued with my self-esteem. You get a trophy for showing up. It starts with garbage like that. And then you didn't do anything. And in fact, you're sinful. But we're going to dress it up and call it beautiful and good. Number six, culture deceives us about our sin nature by calling it self-esteem. So now what we need is a change of heart. Sam Edelman went to this church, the Edelmans, uh, John and Leslie, several years ago. Sam uh, ended up being a patient of mine. His brother, Ike, was on my football team. Sam had a bone tumor. Well, we're playing football. Ike's on the team. We're done. Dismiss the team. I look. Sam is limping. Yeah, whatever. A couple days later, we have another practice. Finish up. We're going, and Sam is limping. Why is a kid limping like this? So I go to the parents. What's going on with Sam? Why is he limping? Oh, well, there's been football season. Clear back in baseball season. He got hit by a ball, and he's been limping ever since. Don't buy that. Even if you cracked his tibia, that's going to have healed in several months by now. So we need to get imaging. Imaging is done. He has an aggressive bone tumor. So I send him up to the guy in Portland, the pediatric bone tumor specialist. This is bad, Sam. It probably is going to kill you, but we're going to take your leg. We're going to amputate, study the thing, and figure out what to do for treatment from there. But it's going to start with an amputation. He goes in for that surgery. A lot of prayer. He was in the prayer letter. This was, you know... 18 years ago or so, he's in the prayer letter. He goes in for surgery. It's pus, this weird pus stuff. Culture it, clean it out. Look, the the doc can't find any tumor. Pick line in there. He's on antibiotics for about nine months. They go in for their post-op visit. uh, And so they're just happy because Sam still has his leg attached to his body. And back then, the MRIs are up here. He's looking at the kid, looking at the MRI, looking at the kid, looking at the MRI. That is a tumor. I am the expert in the state on long bone tumors in children. That is a tumor. In fact, it's an aggressive tumor. That is a solid mass. That is not liquid, fluid, or pus. That is not acting like an infection. That is a tumor. But when I got in there to amputate the leg and take the tumor out, throw it in the bucket to go into the pathologist, that was pus. It was weird. It was running. I don't get it. And he's looking. I just do not get it. Well, mom, Leslie pipes up. 500 people praying the prayer letter for this kid. A lot of prayers going on. I wonder if it was a miracle. He was looking at this, and she's relaying this story to me later. It's no blanking miracle. But he used the French word. Just angry, 
Shouldn't we be happy my kid still has a leg? No, anger. Why did anger come out? Let's analyze Matthew 12, words of Jesus. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So we're going to look at the heart, what's going on in this guy's heart. Number seven, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. I think he has an anger problem triggered by the word miracle. That connects to God. He's got an anger problem with God. We don't know what it is. Proverbs 28, 29. When a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs. There is no rest or peace. What is a fool? Not acting foolishly like children. Again, that's uh, one of Satan's tools. It is someone who says there is no God. That is a fool, and that's in their heart that they say that. And he has emotion, rages and laughs. Number eight, the thinking of a fool is based on, you can choose, emotion or truth. My choice is emotion. Why? He hates the truth in his heart. He can't handle it. So now we have another bone tumor. This is a decade after Sam Edelman. And they gave me permission to share that story. It's an interesting story. I had another kid about 10 to 12 years old, and he has a tumor down in his tibia. So I have a couple different radiologists, look at a couple different orthopedic surgeons, and they're unanimous. This is a tumor. This is aggressive. You got to get him up to the guy, and you got to get him up there now. This is beyond us. So I sent him up. He goes in there, and I kid you not, it's the same thing. Aggressive tumor, we're going to amputate, then we're going to see what to do from there. Ends up being pus, put him in a pick line, antibiotics, uh, and he's going to go in for his follow-up visit. But the parents saw me the day before that visit just to kind of tell me, like, we're rejoicing, we're praying in the off there for Christian family. This is amazing. I hadn't told them about Sam Edelman because you don't want to just give somebody false hope. But now I told him about Sam Edelman and said, well, you're going to go see this guy. Here's what happened a decade ago with a surgeon you're going to go talk to. Just so you know, so kind of keep it tight to the chest. So they go in there. Now it's no longer up there. The MRI's on the computer. Look at the kid, computer, kid, different views. That is a tumor. That is not liquid. That is not pus. That is not infection. That is an aggressive tumor. Look at these features. He's pointing out, and he's, that is a tumor. But when I got into your boy's leg, there was no tumor to be found, and it was this liquidy pus. We have to see what happens with the antibiotics, but this might hold. And so they're like, just don't say anything about miracles or prayer. Just be. And the doc starts looking at the paperwork. This, You guys are from Albany. This is interesting. It was about 10 years ago. I've I've only seen this twice in my career. Ten years ago, there was a kid your age from Albany that showed up here. It was this exact same thing. And the parents are like, "Mm, okay. You know, it was some kind of miracle. The doctor said that. I have, that's a true story. I have no idea what happened from point A to point B, but anger at the mention of a miracle to him volunteering, that was a miracle that I don't understand. It's beyond medical science. That is fine. That was the bone tumor specialist in pediatrics. So that brings us to the big picture. Something changed in this guy's heart. Did he change it? No, we can't. That's an act of God. That is a sovereign action. So there's bad stuff. There's good stuff. Where are we going to put God? If you go to Walmart and ask enough people, you'll have debate on this. But we know God is over here on the good side. How about us? With our sin nature, before we're saved, we're over here on the bad or the evil side. Yeah, but God loves me just the way that I am and wants a relationship with me. He can't have a relationship with you over there. 
Let's think about that. Now we're going to talk about our softball. I hit this double. I'm the best player. But in this same softball game last Monday, my son, who's 20, who can actually run, goes running in. He was safe in the second head first slide. But there you can see spiral fractures, metacarpal three and four. And then his finger's not in good shape. Look how our finger should look. That's how his looked. And there's a fracture up in there. So he's got three fractures and a massively dislocated finger. So you see that, and I've reduced several of those on various fields. I got over there, and I am working. It's like this, and he's in a lot of pain, and I can't get it. And I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, but I'm like, you know, there may be more going on here than we think. It might not just be a simple dislocation. We have to pack it up and spend the night in the ER, and you've all done that. It's a miserable time. So the doc comes in, and he's like, yeah, let me just pull that. And I'm like, you know, I've tried to, yeah, whatever, Dad. No, I've done a bunch of these. His is tough. You you better to get him numbed up. He wanted to go fast, so he goes out, he gets him numbed up, come five minutes he is pulling on that thing, he can't get it back. My son is suffering in silence, he's doing his deep breathing, but that hurts, he's got fractures all over the place, he is in significant pain, the doc cannot get it reduced, he's frustrated, he leaves, he comes back, he numbs him up more, another several minutes he cannot get it pulled out, and so the ER doc is thinking, I've got my big boy pants on. I can't change them in for little boy pants and call the orthopedic surgeon in. I've got to fix this. He comes back again, and he finally gets it on his third prolonged try. And you see and hear the pop, and it goes in. There's still a lot of pain from those fractures. Going through that process this last Monday night, I was thinking, I love my son. I will take it for you, buddy. I don't need my hand for much. I don't do anything with it. So I'll take the pain. For you. Remember Mike in his preaching sermon a couple weeks ago? He talked about taking the spankings for his brother. I'll take that heat for you. Because, why? Because I love you. We've got to think about this. For God so loved the world. He loves me so much. He wants a relationship with me over here as I am. False statement. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Loved. This is not emotional relationship love. This is agapeo again. This is a verb of action, of doing. And it's not simply coming in and taking it. When Mike took the spanking for his brother, did that have any power to change his brother's heart? No. When I was willing, I went through this thought process. I'm willing to take it for you, Heston. Why? Because I love you in an emotional sense. I'm not sure I really understand agapeo enough. And even if I took your pain, I have no idea how to change your heart. I don't even know what to do. I can't perform agapeo. Only God can. I don't even know how to change his heart and help him grow. I can try to help. I can try to follow God's word. But I don't know how to do that. When Mike took the spank and it doesn't help, Jesus doesn't simply come and take our whipping for us. That's part of it, but it's incomplete. He also applies the power that allows a change of heart. Number nine, most of us have a fundamentally flawed and limited understanding of God's love, agapeo. Proverbs 8, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, evil way, the perverted mouth I hate. Over here as evil, God hates that. There is no relationship there. It's not possible. 
The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. What is an abomination? That is abhorrent. It is something repugnant. No relationship possible. If you're a high priest in the Old Testament and you have any defect, you are called an abomination. You're not allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. There is no relationship when you're an abomination. But he loves. Now this is Old Testament Hebrew. This is not New Testament agapeo. This is Old Testament Hebrew. That's a relationship love. God has this relationship love with this half of the people, not with that half. So now we look at us, we're excluded when we're over there, we're excluded from a relationship with God, and in fact there's a force field around us. Who generates that? Satan. This is Dee's sermon last Christmas. You can go listen to that. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. They're over there. In whose case, Satan, the little g God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves as Christ. We are not preaching like the Pharisees. We are in charge. No, we're fellow servants. Jesus is Lord. That's what Paul's saying. The same God who said, light be as he created That's exactly what it means in the literal. Light be, and there it is, created. Light shall shine out of darkness. That same God that created in Genesis, he is the one. He is the one that shines the light in our heart. He flips that switch on so that we can see. That is divine. That is supernatural. That is not our illumination of studying the word and realizing how smart we are to connect the dots. That is a sovereign act of God that penetrates the heart. God is doing that. And who has blinded us? The little g God, you can see he is not infinite. God is more powerful. Luke 24, Jesus after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he, Jesus, opened their minds to the scripture. They didn't figure it out. He did that for them. Number 10, only God's spirit can open our heart and mind to see the truth. It's all about the heart and mind. It's what we're after. In Nehemiah, God put it into my mind Also in Nehemiah, God put it into my heart. God puts things into our mind and our heart. Well, two can play at that game. John 13, two. The devil put it into the heart of Judas. He can put things into the heart and thoughts. Number 11, spiritual warfare is intense in our heart. Two big boys, two apex predators. Who's gonna win? And we know the infinite God always wins. But we have this force field when we're over there. It's blinders from Satan. It's like a black hole. We cannot pierce out and see. We can't come to the conclusion. It has to be God who flips on the light switch. And that can evaporate this way more powerful than human, but inferior to God's infinite power. It evaporates that force field. And notice it goes clear in deep to our heart and our soul, his light. Now we have to respond. That's where our accountability is. If we do respond, we move over to this side. Now relationship is possible. Over there it's not. Over here it is. That's the full understanding of agapeo. It's not simply taking the beaten. But we are small. All we do is believe and trust. Is this phileo love a relationship love? No. It's agapeo, this action verb that ends up pointing to the preexistent glory of God. Therefore, having been justified, this movement from A to B, this side of the ledger, that is justified. How? Not by our intelligence, but by faith. Now we have what? We have peace. Now we have peace. We can have a relationship with God, but it's not through our own merit. It's not through our own wisdom. It is through the agapeo action of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what moves us over there. And then we can continue to grow as we go through trials, and we're accountable to that. And you might say, Aren't we lucky that God is good? Because think about that. Infinite being, self exists. Where is he going to be? He could be good. He could be bad. He might be in the middle. A lot of the ancient pagan deities were very moody, right in the middle. 
Why is, aren't we lucky God is good? That's a 50-50 ball. No. Just like his glory, God is infinite. What is evil? What is bad? Nothing was created evil or bad. Everything was perfect. Only good exists of itself and from creation. Evil is a corruption. Just like a cancer cell, it's mutated. That's how we are. We mutate. We're now damaged. We are corrupted. Because of the fact that God is infinite, he cannot be corrupted. Nothing can corrupt him. He's not subject to the second law of thermodynamics and decay. He cannot be corrupted. He cannot be evil because he is infinite. Evil is a corruption. And that points to his intrinsic glory. Not given to him by anything, but his intrinsic glory. To recognize the truth is to give glory to the creator. Our last passage will be Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious. I I see anxiety every day in the office. Anxiety, don't have that, but rather in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Then what happens? Then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How powerful is this? It transcends all comprehension. This is an infinite power of God. Where is it acting? There it is, our hearts and minds. It's acting in our hearts and minds, but this doesn't go to everybody. This is when we make the choice in our heart to rejoice in our trials and our tribulations. Thanksgiving. When we rejoice, have thanksgiving, Romans 1, what is that? Worship. Even when it's hard, that is worship. Jerry had a very interesting sermon here a couple weeks ago where he said, worship is a powerful weapon in spiritual warfare. And that stuck with me. I liked it. Because here's one example of this playing out. Yes, the word of God is our sword and prayer. Those are offensive weapons. But we are not very good wielding the sword. We need his spirit working in us. Here's one to look at an infinite power. This is an infinite power that transcends all understanding, guarding our hearts and minds. How do we wield this weapon? We don't. It's God's weapon. That's the point. But we have to be humble and rejoice or he won't come to play. If we want to do it on our own, go ahead. You're on your own. That's 12. The key to spiritual warfare is the action of God. So the last two weeks we've been looking at a study on our heart and mind, various anatomic things. We're really going to focus on the heart and mind, that concept of a cognitive dissonance. But that points out there is a superior thing, and that is the spirit. That overarches all, and that's what we need to tap into to transform and change our heart. So in summary, we've looked at the heart and mind, a cognitive dissonance. Your mind can see it. Mary and Martha could see what would happen, but their heart didn't take it. Anger towards God. Sadducees, there ain't no resurrection, but they can see in their mind, but their heart won't take it. You and I are no different. We are told, just like Mary and Martha, things will end in glory, but we don't believe it because God doesn't understand our pain. Therefore, we get a cognitive dissonance and anger, and the root of bitterness that goes deep. Those are deep consequences, especially when you put the topos of Satan getting legal territory. Ah, that's powerful. We need a change of heart. That's the big picture, is the supernatural power of God. Uh, So uh, we're going to move into communion. Um, I'm going to just say a prayer for that, and as we do, I've been challenged this week quite a bit, and I can't tell you how many times I've knelt here. Uh, There's stuff in the front, stuff in the back, um, the elements there of remembering Christ. I so many times have said, thank you, Lord, for taking my place. 
That's true, but it's insufficient. It's not that he loves us so much that he wants a relationship. He loves us so much and has the power to do whatever it takes to transform our heart so that a relationship is possible. He's not just taking a spanking. It goes far beyond that. It really challenges my thinking. Let's pray for our communion. Dear Lord, I just thank you for loving us. Thank you that you are the sovereign God. You are the creator. You have glory intrinsic to yourself. As we come and kneel before you, as we eat the bread and drink the cup and remember your love for us, especially displayed on the cross, help us to realize we must decrease, you must increase. Help us to kneel before you in humility and ask for the wisdom to deal with the curveballs life throws us and reject Satan's attempt to put anger deep in a root in our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.